brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Pagaro. この子を家まで送ってくからね。車代もらっとけよ。傷跡がいつまでも残るわよ。それは姉さんが思い切って行動しなかったから破れないって自信あるの？あんたたち。余計なことは言わないでくれ。俺たち、あんたが方みたいにみっともないことにはならないよ。確かに僕たちは社会を
Cruel Story of Youth or Naked Youth. It is not the Naked Story of Youth. That's a whole other movie. It is the tale of Fuji and Mako, two headstrong young Japanese people who fall in love, or lust at least, and rebel against the world. The film is one of three feature-length films put out by Japanese New Wave filmmaker Oshima in 1960, kicking off a decade-plus run of fascinating films that are sadly all too often overlooked, even by those professing to be cinephiles. I'm looking at you, Mr. Cinephile, with your twirly mustache. If you don't know Nagisa Oshima, you definitely need to check him out. So, I want to get your guys' initial impressions. Miguel, when did you first see this, and what did you think? The first time I saw A Cruel Story of Youth, I was in high school, and um, it was... uh, Aptly enough, I suppose, uh, shown to me by a literature teacher who I had, and uh, as a double feature with Rebel Without a Cause, and uh, just to look at you know the different takes on I guess rebellious youth cinema, and um, and one thing that you know struck me was just how uh, I always found Oshima's film to be aggressively honest in a way that Rebel maybe it wasn't necessarily rebel without a cause is still so you know cinematic in hollywood but this one uh it doesn't lose any of its um bite i don't think after all this time i have to say sadly after working in a video store that had a decent amount of foreign film i was not familiar with oshima and this is my first time seeing cruel story of youth but i have to say Excellent experience checking it out. And uh, like you were saying, talking about tying it into like Rebel Without a Cause or 1950s American uh, juvenile delinquent films, I think there are elements of that in here. Or at least I felt um, there was almost uh, a call to that, but it goes further. And that's the thing that I think is even more fascinating, and especially if you understand some of the background in uh, post-war Japan, which we hope – uh, to highlight in this episode, it'll be an even richer experience once you take a look at it. Yeah, Rebel Without a Cause. I mean, I like the film. I appreciate it what it was. I can appreciate that when you're in high school, that certain things feel like they're going to be the end of the world. You know, there's that drama. I think we talked a little bit about that on Battle Royale as far as. You know, when you're in high school, those relationships and all that kind of stuff, it just feels so heightened. You know, it's, it's to the point of like ridiculous melodrama kind of stuff. Well, well, I mean, that's the only world you have. I mean, once you become an adult, you have, you know, many different worlds. You have work and life and home and family. So you have all these different worlds. But when you're in school, that's all you have. So I think it probably compresses all the emotions. Yeah, not to mention the classic. Uh hormones that that shoot everything every every feeling is amplified and uh and and a sense of perspective is also you don't have the maturity of perspective to to put things in their proper context so all these things that have importance are very very important those problems from something like a rebel without a cause are like a walk in the park compared to what these guys, these kids are dealing with. I mean, this feels so real to me and it has that same level of melodrama and all this, as far as who's going out with who and, and past relationships and all this, but it just feels like it is kicked up to just the most intense kind of stuff. I mean, this is 
really hard hitting kind of stuff. And I wasn't necessarily prepared for that the first time I watched this. I mean, you see the cover image and we talked a little bit before the show started recording. You see that old uh, New Yorker VHS tape that was out there where you've got the guy kind of, um, I don't know, biting the girl on the shoulder and she looks happy and I don't know. And, and even though it's got the title cruel story of youth, it's still just, I wasn't expecting the hard hitting film that I ended up getting. It starts at a level and it just gets more and more intense as the film goes on. And I really didn't think that at certain points that it would be able to get even more intense. And it just continues driving you into this area where frankly, I felt very uncomfortable, but in a great way It's definitely a downward spiral momentum of a film. Yeah, just when things uh, Oshima decides he's going to give a glimmer of hopes uh, of hope or uh, an aura of joy that might be on the horizon. He snatches it away. <laughs> yeah, it's very it, it doesn't feel dated like a lot of the other juvenile delinquent films are. I mean, it does in a way like with hairstyles and and uh, music. But but in terms of the conflicts, doesn't feel dated whatsoever. No, I mean, totally. You could take this and probably take the same script and shoot it today with modern haircuts and stuff, and it would probably still work. You wouldn't have changed too much. When it first started, I thought, oh, okay, this is just a story of a boy and a girl and relationships and parents who don't understand and and all of that stuff. And then I'm like, oh, okay, so there's protests against uh, American occupation, military occupation of Japan. There's a whole story about abortion. Uh, there's a whole story about prostitution. There's a whole story about basically gangs and you know loose kind of confederacy of, of gangs who are – beating up people and taking their money. Uh, there's all of this stuff that's in here that you wouldn't do in 1960 in an American film. I don't think you could talk about abortion in 1960 in an American film in this way. Certainly not with the candor that they talk about in this film. And in fact, there's a line uh, in the film where it really drew a, a stark um, comparison or contrast to American films where Kyoshi asks Mako, are you on your period? For a film in 1960, you would never see James Dean asking that question, you know? And there's so much stuff in here that it's obvious sexuality. Like, we don't see, you know, moaning and thrusting, but we get that they wake up together in bed. And there is, like you said, the question of, you know, did you get your period and all of this stuff. So there's no doubt that people are having sex and they're just pretty much open about it. In 1960, I mean, it would be like, oh, we're going steady. I'm wearing his sweater. He gave me his pin. You know, <laughs> it's like those yeah, would letter. have been the American subtext for we're dating and you have an intimate relationship. But there would have been no conversation like that. I mean, I don't even think that uh, most of the time you get a reference to a woman's period in an American film unless it's done as a joke or in some sort of like Woody Allen. No, you know, what's wrong with you? You're all emotional. You're having your period, you know, in Annie Hall. I mean, like it, it nobody has that conversation in American film. Yeah, there's no relationship between a woman on her period and when she is able to get pregnant. You know, it's like mm. <laughs> the the two things are completely removed. It's just like, are you in a bitchy mood is basically what are are you on your period, you know, translates to rather than is it safe to have sex? And it's like these guys, they were having sex 
pretty darn often in this movie. And at first I was thinking like, oh, well, they're not going to go there. They're not going to go to, you know, her getting pregnant. And then sure enough, they did. And then I was like, no, they're not going to go to the abortion play. Oh, yeah. Yes, they did. So this pulled out all the stops. And that's funny. You're talking multiple partners, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Multiple partners. And then this kind of like... uh, I don't know, May, December romance going on between the, the guy and his former partner or well, who kind of still is his partner at the same time. I mean, that's this uh, kind of interesting thing where he's almost like a kept man and, you know, you just don't necessarily see that. I mean, that would have been, you know, a little groundbreaking even for something like uh, midnight cowboy in 69. Well, that was uh, kind of the graduate, wasn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. in a particular way. I mean, and I also find it interesting that there's a mirroring of that in that he has this older woman and the girl finds this older man. And they have this mirroring in a way in this secondary relationship where it depends on which way you're looking at it. You could see the older woman in his relationship as being much more demanding and domineering of him in which the other way with the, the young girl and the older man, he's much more caring and is sort of fatherly, I guess, and much more like looking after her. I thought that was interesting. And then there's also to me a third mirror in which it's um, her sister. And we get the feeling that maybe her sister's five years or like in my mind, I'm thinking five years, seven years older or something like that. And her and her former boyfriend, who happens to be this doctor at this, um, I guess, factory or place. And they discuss sort of like, oh, yeah, you know what happened with us? And yeah, we used to be silly and, you know, we're older now. We kind of, you know, we're not as crazy as we used to be and all that stuff. So they, to me, kind of represent what these two characters could be 10 years down the road, maybe. And understanding that while youth is good and exciting and everything is, you know, new and fresh, that some age, some uh, perspective can uh, – actually help you live a much more uh, richer life and have a richer experience. You know, I think that's true. But one thing that strikes me about the sister, particularly Mako's uh, relationship with her sister, as well as her sister's former lover, who is the doctor in the film, while they have the benefit of experience and they have, unfortunately, the benefit of regret behind them, they don't seem to have the wherewithal or personal wisdom to appropriately share that with the youth in a really kind of beneficial way to them. It ends up just being further fuel for the flames in terms of keeping their relationship so volatile. And I think there's something being said there, like, you know, we can learn from our own mistakes, but can we share that wisdom with those who are coming after us? And I don't think I don't think the sister succeeds in that. No, not at all. It definitely feels like, you know, she's kind of shaking her finger at her younger sister, like, oh, don't be like this. And I once had love and everything, and now I regret it and blah, blah, blah. But it's there isn't that level of compassion. It just seems like there's such a formality between them that she's not singing her down and saying, listen, I know what's going on, and you know, you're at this point in your life. And it just feels very much like don't do this. And there's no explanation as to why not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're, they're not honest with each other and they're not open with each other. And so there's a lot of friction that comes from that. Yeah. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it almost seems like the older people seem to have a bit more understanding of the world than the younger folks. And while they 
don't even completely have it figured out. I was at least feeling that there was a little bit more. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He's within themselves. I mean, I don't think that she relates too well to her younger sister. And like you said, kind of looks down on her. But I at least felt that we could understand in her context of her relationship with the doctor that... You know, okay, we're not as crazy as we used to be, and, you know, that's a good thing. They are so filled with regret, too. And and it's, uh, you know, at what level does the regret come from not having the passion they just they once did, not just for each other, but also politically? I mean, that's a huge part of it, too, is is they were both activists in their youth. And they, they see themselves as having failed each other, but they also see themselves as having failed society and failed their country by, I guess, kind of stopping and becoming stagnant. And looking for looking for a stability that never happened. There's a beautiful shot of uh, Mako's sister, and I can't remember the character's name right now, where she tells the doctor, I never found that stability. I thought I did, but I didn't. And it's such a sad line. And it's shot so perfectly to convey that. Um, It's really intense. Their story as well. Her sister can be more than, what, 30 years old, but it just feels like her life is over. And it feels like the boyfriend, the form, the ex-lover, feels like his life is over. It feels like he is just stuck in this job where he's you know, doing his medical practice, even though he's not you know, the doctor that he thought he once would, doing abortions on the side to make a little extra money. And it just feels like these guys are stuck in a rut and will be for the rest of their lives. Well, you know, I think it's it's a good point here to just mention that this is Nagisa Oshima's second film, which is kind of remarkable. <laughs> but uh, it's his second film. He was still a young filmmaker. And this is not one of his independent films. Later on, I think in 64 or something, he starts his own film company because he's like many auteurs are frustrated with the studio system in in Japan. This is not one of those, you know, this was his, this is one an early film that was with a company marketed as a youth film. What makes this so special is Oshima puts so much of his own frustrations into the story and Oshima himself having been a, uh, very much like the sister, um, having been a, uh, an activist and having, had that leave a sour taste in his mouth. I think Nagisa Oshima came to this film feeling not belonging anywhere. And I feel like, you know, his view of the Japanese identity is in limbo and nebulous and lost. 
and he's projecting that on all of these characters. And that's kind of what I got to in terms of, you know, the background being these the the protests and the discussion around Anpo, which is the um, American uh, military occupation, is when when I was looking at how these rebellious youth characters, and then even the older sister and stuff like that. Uh, at first, I was looking at it, I go. Oh, this is like a Japanese um, youth rebellion film. This is like we already brought up uh, Rebel Without a Cause or any other, you know, ones from that era. And then I thought to myself, in terms of the political background, I go, this is like the 1960s, late 60s, or early early to late 70s in America. I mean, it's sort of that you know anti-Vietnam War kind of protest. But I would say that it even breaks after that. This almost feels like more like mid-70s and beyond, because when you look at sort of the punk movement in America from the 70s, you find that it was like you know the, the anti-war protests and all of that stuff that didn't work. Uh, Nixon and Watergate, the politicians are lying to us. The economy's in the toilet. It's like all of these things kind of coalesce together so that by the mid seventies, there was this, you know, malaise, you know, the long national nightmare and all of that stuff of politics and, and everything. And just the feeling that you can understand when punk makes itself known and becomes a movement and a presence in in culture and in attitude that there was just this attitude of fuck it who cares like nothing's going to change we're being screwed at every turn and you get the feeling in here much more for 1960 in japan than you would have had in 1960 in america you wouldn't i mean this was the dawn of the kennedy era you know back in the states so i don't think you would have had that kind of like like i wrote in my notes i go the way the kids are in terms of they're beating people up and taking the money or the prostitution thing or, or all that stuff there's just this nihilist attitude this sort of fuck it, nothing matters, and they're lying to us, and they're fucking us. Attitude. Nope. Yeah. No future. The queen. The queen is dead. <laughs> I think. No. I think you make an excellent point. It, it is like they reached 1978 in 1960. Um, if you look at post-war Japan, it's kind of easy to see why that would be. These kids. Uh, I don't think it's totally clear exactly. Uh, how old Kyo and Mako are in the film. Uh, like uh, Mike said, I think they're probably, I'm going to guess 17, 18, um, if, I, if I had to make a stab at it. But that would put, that would make them, you know, at the oldest three when Nagasaki and Hiroshima went up in flames. And, uh, and so really, these, these, are, these are the first generation of post-war J- uh, Japan kids and uh, they don't, you know, they don't know a world of pre-1945 Japan, which you know, it was very different. You know, 1945 really shook the country. And uh, especially in terms of I've always thought about this as being very interesting in uh, how quickly the countries of Japan and the U.S. mended relations and started to work together. I mean, the first treaty of uh, the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, or ANPO, as you mentioned, was in 1952, just seven years after the bombs went off. Um, This film takes place in 1960, when the treaty is going to be ratified, it's going to be a little bit amended, but it's still, as you said, it, it has U.S. military on Japanese soil, and I can't imagine being 
a Japanese citizen or a teenager with this looming over the head. And all I know is, you know, these are the people who annihilated two cities. You know, it, it does seem like it could cause some supreme rage. Well, and then also with the end of World War II, wasn't it the whole idea of the emperor is infallible mm-hmm. at this point? And then once that happens, it's like, yep, depose the emperor. You know, this person who was treated like a god on earth, and, you know, they have been so psyched up to go into battle and, you know, take on the world and everything. And then to have that just thrown back in their faces and have two cities completely burned down to the ground. I mean, yeah, this is, it's a nightmare. You know, they've been living with a nightmare for 15 years at this point when the movie starts. And it's just, we can't stress enough, you know, just uh, how downtrodden these folks are. I mean, it's far worse than Watergate and finding that the president has been lying to you. Now you get to know that the God who ran your country is just a, a feeble old man like everybody else. Yeah, and and allowed a second city to get annihilated before, you know, uh, it's you bring up a really interesting point there, because uh, after 1945, Hirohito was not deposed. He didn't leave. He stayed emperor. You know, he stayed emperor until the 80s. It was just kind of a a almost, you know, well, he's still emperor. It's I guess it's kind of like the UK family now or it's almost uh, just tradition. But it's just highlights that lack of identity or that confusion that seems to have hit Japan after 1945, where, you know, they go deep, you know, after 1945, they become a demilitarized society, but still have a huge industry of films venerating the warrior, you know, that kind of, there's a lot of contradiction with the cultural things that happen and then what is really going on in Japan. I think all of that is just a boiling pot that sets the background for the world in which these these kids live where they feel like they have nothing. And so, you know, they do kind of it, – it almost – they try to force apathy. I, I feel this in Kiyoshi where, you, you know, he's an apathetic – very mean-spirited kid, but sometimes there are moments where it seems like he is desperately trying to hold on to his apathy because apathy is what makes, you know, the pain go away. Which, like I said, is that whole, like, punk nihilism kind of attitude that I saw, you <laughs> know, in terms of, you know, what the popular culture, you know, ethos of what punk rock in America was. The other thing that's interesting is all of the older males in the film who would have been those who survived the war, you either get the feeling that they either fought or they, you know, were back home in some manner, are very sedate. They're very put upon. Like the father, isn't there the father? And there's the fight between the father and the two girls. And eventually he takes off. He just leaves. It it doesn't seem that he really asserts himself. It's almost like, whatever, you know, forget it. And then you get the feeling also with, um, although he's a nicer man, you know, um, the, the guy who picks up uh, Mako and, and all of that. And, and, and then he gets beaten up by her boyfriend um, and he takes the money 
from him. You even get that he, even though, I mean, he's not like an 80-year-old man. I mean, he could have fought back in some manner, but you just get the feeling that anyone who's like over 40 <laughs> in this universe uh, that's been created is kind of, they've, they've had their balls removed in some manner. And and I don't know if that's the statement he's trying to make, that, you know, those of you who who lived through the war, you came back and you're all damaged. You have no, you know, honor. Your honor's been taken away from you because you lost. You know, it. it, it I mean, in some way, it, it maybe it plays like a corollary to um, to certain impressions in American film of, of Vietnam veterans. Oftentimes we see Vietnam veterans as damaged or, you know, they're mentally ill or they're not assertive or they've, you know, they've had this horrible thing happen to them and they're not who they were. And even though they're not coming out and saying, I was in the war, fuck you, there's this thing where it's an Im- implied, at least as far as I'm concerned, that these guys would have been in the war and their manner is more sedate than the youth who are like, eh, you know, up in their face. There is a stereotype of the Japanese yes man, and um, and I think that that Oshima might have been playing with that a little bit with all of the middle aged men, uh, all of whom Mako is you know getting into cars and driving with so that they can you know beat up for money. Uh, they all kind of have that about them that that businessman kind of aspect. They're like you said a little bit not very assertive they kind of just take it and roll with the punches and it's very possible that oshima was criticizing that kind of behavior criticizing them as much for being not assertive as for being lecherous i've also read oshima criticize earlier mike talked about you know even cinephiles seem to not talk about oshima very much but cinephiles always talk about ozu or uh, Kurosawa, and uh, I've read criticism of those guys that Oshima makes because, you know, he, he didn't, th- their films didn't resonate for Oshima, not nearly as much as Godard did or, or some of the French New Wave stuff, obviously. And uh, and I think, I think for some of the same kinds of reasons, he didn't really like their humanistic approach that much. I think he thought it was a little disingenuous. One of the things I really appreciate about this film is that it is so centered on Mako. This is a, and not really even her, I mean, it's a woman's picture. When you come to think of who our protagonists are in this one, I much more am following her story and the sister's story, and somewhat even the ex-lover, the older woman, so much of this movie to me and feel free to disagree with me guys it feels like a woman's picture it feels like we have these strong female protagonists and maybe they're not the strongest as far as like you know being active and you know getting what they want but i'm definitely following their story more than i am any of the male characters oh definitely i can de- with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Definitely see that because it really is the battle between the sisters in a lot of ways. And to bring up and discuss all of the things around abortion, the way it's done is that's where the focus of the film is on get the feeling that maybe the um the rambunctious boys could be interchangeable because they seem a little less uh fleshed out compared to their motivations they seem just very like primitive and basic but i did get more of a, a feeling that we know more about this girl and her friend and the sister and and all of that stuff and that's really what i think came across for me I think uh, an important element of that is Mako is the one who has a story arc. She's the one who starts one way and ends a different way. Uh, Kiyoshi's kind of the same throughout. He's kind of static. And, uh, and Mako is the one who goes through a, a change in her character. And I think a lot of credit has to be given to Miyuki Kuwano, the actress who played Mako. She's just a force of nature. I think uh, she really... I mean, everybody, the acting is solid all around, of course, but there's something special about her. It's funny. I just want to kind of take a little sideline here and say it's it's humorous to me. We're referring to the woman as Mako pretty much all the way through, but you're calling the boy Kiyoshi, and I've been calling him Fuji, and I think that's just a difference of our subtitles. Yes. <laughs> the subtitles for this film are the version that I saw, they're definitely lacking. I saw uh, some sort of a DVD rip of it, and there are several points where I know that they're not saying what the subtitles are saying. I've only had like just a few weeks of Japanese study, so I'm definitely not fluent, but I can tell, even just by the sentence construction, that the subtitles are not fully accurate and then there were several parts right towards the end of the movie which was a fairly intense conversation that our two main characters are having where the boy call him fuji or kiyoshi he's saying a lot of stuff and i'm not getting any subtitles for it and it was just so frustrating (laughs) so it's uh definitely a film that's in need of like the one true version of this thing yeah we talked a little bit about the new yorker version i think that's one of the versions that you saw miguel and then there's also the criterion version that's out there as far as the one that's on hulu but i'm not sure if this exists as a criterion disc of any kind and not to say that that is going to be the one true ring kind of thing the lingua franca but it's interesting that there are these kind of things because even when i was reading the description of the movie on imdb I was like, well, I know for sure that they keep calling the girl Mako and not Makato. And, but the boy's name, like, unless I was screwing him up with his friend, you know, it's, uh, and because those two guys kind of looked similar at times to me, maybe had I watched this a few more times, they would, they would have started to look different. But there are times where the boys kind of looked interchangeable, perhaps to the point that we were talking about earlier of these boys are kind of interchangeable. They're all just kind of silly boys who 
you know, are rebellious and maybe not even for a good reason. Well, I mean, for me, the subtitles also, I believe, were English subtitles. And what I mean by that is they were British English because there are certain word choices and spellings that were used that obviously are not American English. So so I think that, add, at least in the version I watched, added like another level on top of it. The VHS uh, subtitles are, are, are pretty pretty different from the ones that I just saw on Hulu on the Criterion Janus version that they have on there. I just, I, you know, I would love to see a more, um, I don't know, official, an official release with better, better translations. However possible that is, I know it can be extremely difficult. So if people think that we're talking about two different characters, when we talk about these guys, they're the same characters. I just wanted to let people know that we're not, crazy and we're not fighting about this we just our versions of the film are fighting with one another in a very tacit way sometimes they use the family name and sometimes they use the uh the first name and yeah and in in, as you know already in in japan the family name comes first so there you know that also causes some other difficulties in discerning character names well, that's why I was calling her the girl and the sister and the boyfriend, because <laughs> I wasn't going to sit here and fight on what name I'm like, who, who am I talking about again? Because basically I was just like, all right, there's like six main characters. So as long as I just say, OK, the boyfriend and then the girl and then her sister, then I think we all know what we're talking about. I say we do that from now on. <laughs> Rob, you talked a little bit earlier about the whole idea of the mirroring between the different stories and everything. And obviously there's, um, you know, not to get into spoilers, but there's definitely a mirror going on at the end uh, in a, a, a great split screen kind of effect. But there's also this mirroring where you see um, the girl starting to smoke a little bit because her boyfriend has you know is smoking and then she kind of picks it up a little bit and then you see the sister is already a smoker and it's almost like this rite of passage for her trying to be an adult and putting on airs as if she were an adult and it, it was just kind of amusing to me to to see this kind of attempt of hers and we don't necessarily get that followed through in the rest of the movie but it was nice to see this kind of like little touch of what is happening with her and this whole movie is so well put together and it is uh, you know we really need to talk about the the way that the movie is i mean you know we can talk about you know how the story is ripped from the headlines and we have newspapers and the opening credits all this kind of stuff but this is prime example of japanese new wave filmmaking so we get these kind of great uses of the camera of the editing of the framing of music and it just really knocked my socks off while i'm watching this you know to to just kind of you know for an example so we have uh the boy and the girl and they're on the boy's motorcycle and they're talking about their plan to let's get these old guys to pick you up and then you know we can beat up the old guy and I'll take their money and that's how they're going to make their money from you know from there on out pretty much and immediately we cut and she's in a car with the guy there's no transition whatsoever it's just bam right there but of course, I'm following along with it. It worked beautifully, and then you know you cut back to the boy, and he's on the motorcycle alone. So you're like, okay, they're already doing this kind of thing, and I love that kind of immediacy that the film had. That there wasn't this kind of typical, you know, now the scene begins. Here's the thrust of the scene. Here's the end of the scene. There's 
all wheat, no chaff when it came to this movie. It was just all the action inside of these scenes. Yeah, every time a scene transitioned, it seemed to jump ahead X amount of time into the future. Definitely. There, and sometimes it, it sometimes it's a little confusing. Like I think in the hands of of a lesser filmmaker, it's probably not a good idea to do some of some of the tricks that uh, Oshima did in this. I'm trying to think of one particular moment. Uh, I can't remember what preceded it, but it jumps to a scene, and um, the girlfriend is back in uh, going back to her boyfriend's. Uh, house after having you know left for a little while to stay at her parents house again and it the scene opens and she comes in he's off frame and you see her asking if he's angry and it it just it just starts and uh and you're right it it is it's just um almost like snapshots of what is happening in their lives instead of being pulled along on a rope the whole way suddenly you're here and suddenly you're there that was very interesting. It, to me, borrows from two places. And the thing that's amazing is that both of which were, mm, I mean, one was a little older than the other, but um, relatively new ideas. One would be sort of, you know, post-war Italian film, which had been around, you know, at this point when this movie made, you know, 10, 15 years. But the other one that I also saw was things such as framing and style choices of the French New Wave, which was only a year or two before. Something like 400 Blows or, you know, Breathless, but not as low rent and on the street <laughs> as, as Breathless is. And I mean that in the best, in the best way pop, possible because I love it. But it just the idea of taking the camera, going out on the street, shooting this stuff. There's a staging of one scene. I think it's about 22 minutes in or so where there's, I think, four or six different kids. And they're just on the street and they're talking and the ones walking back and forth and the camera's moving around them. It was just really well done because I think in the hands of anyone else, it just would have been a static shot or it would have been a bunch of close-up intercuts. And the way it's used is sort of like one fluid take, and it follows him as he talks to these folks over here and those over there. It's just, you know, stylistically, it was done really well. And especially in that because there was these uh, key lights that the actor had that was like hitting the side of his face. It's really nice, like, I guess, Rembrandt lighting on a completely dark street except for like, you know, signs in the background. I was just like, that's that's masterfully done. And, and as you said, this being only a second film, the guy obviously knew what he was doing. What's really fascinating is the pretty extreme changes in stylistic choices depending on what the scene is saying um i love the scene you're talking about with the on street in fact all of the on street conversations are really dynamic but um but something a lot of times it'll be handheld and most of it very uh, like you said very very new wave uh feel to it very naturalistic feel to it but there are times where suddenly it gets very stylized and not only does the the camera style change but the lighting changes a lot of times it's using natural light and in fact there are some very beautiful scenes where like i think the lighting is like the head uh, the headlights off of cars but then there are scenes for example where the boyfriend is you know eating and gnawing on an apple and it's very artfully done and the style is very different in that particular shot. Or there's another scene where uh, later in the end where um, the girl is 
they have just, you know, gone separate ways and she's walking down the street and uh, it reminded me almost of Carnival of Souls with the all the sound is suddenly gone. It, most of the film is natural sounds, but this time all sounds gone. You just hear her footsteps on the street and the lighting again is is very peculiar it's not as naturalistic as other scenes so uh, all these different scenes deciding to almost feel like a different type of movie for a few seconds is kind of striking when they happen just to put this out there i just wanted to say that breathless actually came out in march of 1960 and cruel story of youth came out in june of 1960 so i definitely think that there were two very distinct things going on in two different parts of the world that weren't necessarily copying off each other, but there was uh, something in the zeitgeist that was going on when it came to these film movements because they are so complementary of each other, but so different at the same time. I, I find it very fascinating that both of these movements can be happening at the same time and really kind of use some of the same stylistic stuff. For me, and I know that uh, this might ruffle some feathers, I've never really been a big Godard fan, so it's like, you know, he just seemed to be doing this stuff style for style's sake. That's and, it. I'm off the podcast. Yeah, I'm out of here. I quit. Something like Breathless, I can't really stand at all because it just feels like this plotless meandering kind of thing and they're just using jump cuts for the sake of like whatever. But in Cruel Story of Youth, it really feels like they're using the stylistic stuff in order to help tell the story. You know, the the scene that you mentioned, Miguel, as far as the the apple eating scene, I love that. And you have just him eating this apple kind of you know, over the girl and everything. And meanwhile, you get the voices of the sister and her former lover, the doctor, talking about this whole situation. I mean, the use of sound there. I loved just this absolutely bizarre scene where she comes in, the girl comes in and tells the boyfriend that she's pregnant. And all of a sudden you have this non-diegetic music just come up on the soundtrack and they start to dance to it. Of course, I'm immediately thinking of like some of the dance scenes and Godard stuff. And I'm like, here, it really kind of makes sense. And it just, you know, they're happy. This music is playing. Meanwhile, earlier in the film, we have very much some diegetic music where we've got him trying to turn on the radio and find some music. And the only thing that's on the radio, I think is Beethoven's Requiem. And it's just like, yeah, this is kind of bizarre, but it works for the scene and it works to be this great counterpoint to this kind of, you know, happy go lucky scene that the, the kids are having, you know, in their little kind of party space. I kept being confused by the boyfriend's apartment because it seemed like he was sharing that with his friend. Maybe sometimes. What did you guys think about that space? Well, don't you know all Japanese apartments look alike? That's racist towards apartments. Exactly. See, you got it. Um, they, I thought that they were two different places, but they kind of looked the same. Sort of saying that they were at the same sort of class or status level. At least that's what I got. That's funny. Yeah. No, I, I didn't get that. I just, I just got that uh, he kind of lives in a dump, but he has all these buddies that just drop by whenever the heck they want. That That's how I felt about it. It's again, kind of like fuck girls on the bed. That, exactly. Hey, you got to okay. Oh, it, there's even that moment where he walks in. And it's like, Oh, do you want, you want me to give you some more time? You know, I, I feel, <laughs> I feel like he's like, sure. I've got this place. I don't give a shit. Go ahead. Bring them in here. You know, that's, that's the, that is the reaction that I got. It, it's all his place, but you know, his buddies have 
kind of free reign of it. Going uh, back to that Apple scene for a second, and it's it's interesting what images and ideas um, represent in Western culture. And as I was watching the Apple scene and then was remembering, there's a scene in a church uh, earlier, and we see these stained glass windows, and there's a big close-up of you know Christ on the cross and all of that and the stained glass. And I was thinking with the apples, and he focuses on the apples for quite a while. And he's there, you know, eating the apple. We get like like that scene goes on for a while. And I thought, you know, is this some sort of, you know, biblical thing? Because we had the stained glass and the church thing and then the apples. And then obviously, you know, in Western canon, it's like, okay, well, you know, apple and the whole Garden of Eden thing and tree of knowledge and all of that stuff. And I was thinking, is is that what he's saying with this? Is that, you know, we've now wisened up. We've now received this this knowledge or we've been expelled out of the uh, <laughs> the Garden of Eden or the, you know, the, the, the stupidity of youth or something like that. I can say that in Japan, it is customary to bring fruit to people at the hospital. So that has some uh, cultural context of him bringing the apple in the first place. Now, that being said, you know, having that scene for full minutes of him gnawing on this apple, he's not eating this apple in a passive way by any stretch of the imagination and uh his his, you know the shadowing is almost like a noir film it's got like the blinds and only his eyes are illuminated he's gnawing on this apple um there's something going on in him psychologically as this apple is being consumed and uh as was mentioned before he's over the bed where his girlfriend has just had an illegal abortion at his behest um and the next scene after that, it looks like things are going to finally start to change for the better. My, the, What I took from the apple gnawing scene is he is wrestling with himself while he's eating the apple. You know, I'm not happy. I have to change. I have to do something to make things better. And that apple is like his conflict with the way he's acted in the past. And then the scene after that, He's almost like a changed character. And uh, and for me, the Apple scene was him wrestling with who he has been and who he thinks he might want to become. Lover's car. Near the end? Yeah, when there, there's that chase in the taxi cab. I do remember the car, and, I, and now that you mention it, I remember the flag, but I don't remember what the flag was. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say. <laughs> oh, don't be embarrassed. I just barely noticed it, and I was just like, gosh, it seems like that probably means something. Like, you know, when I see flags like that on cars, I usually think of, like, you know, ambassador kind of stuff or politic kind of stuff. I'm just curious maybe if that's another level of her character that we're not picking up on, but I'll just kind of leave it at that and maybe let the experts talk about that some other time. Almost, I mean, it almost certainly does. You know, what's interesting about her character is the power dynamic between their relationship shifts throughout the movie. You know, he, he seems to feel like, as the you know young sexy guy she wants that he can be really kind of abrasive with her and and get whatever she wants but that power dynamic shifts pretty pretty suddenly at the end there and and uh and you know when i think of flags on cars i think almost of politicians so yeah it it, it probably has something to do with that but again someone else might have a better answer 
and I just had to have a laugh at that scene. It's probably not supposed to be funny, but I thought it was funny where they're trying to get away on the motorbike or no, they get in the car, they get in the taxi and then he's being, they're being followed by the boyfriend's old lady, girlfriend side, side relationship. And he's like, loser, you know? So they try to lose her and all this. And then they try to get out and it's like, I have no money. What? You don't have any money. So nobody can pay the taxi except the lady who's tailing them, who she parks and comes over. And then she's like, here and like pays them. And it's like, you call me. So I just thought that was funny that <laughs> like the person they're trying to get away from ends up paying the bill. And, uh, it just, it just, it was just a funny little, little scene. I actually do think there was some sad c- comedy intended with that scene. Uh, she even says, and, and it's it's actually a pretty crushing line at that time. She says, here, I'll do this because I feel sorry for you. Talk to you later or something like that. <laughs> and it's just, it's so uh, acute and just how pathetic it finally shows these kids how they're being because and I think that's a turning point for him where that happened. He's like, oh, wait, I don't have any money. She doesn't have any money. What are we doing? Yeah, you can't even take a taxi for what was it like 320 yen at that time probably would have been about three dollars and 20 cents or something. They can't even pay that amount. You know, it's just come on, guys, you got to get your shit together. I really want to talk about this ending but at the same time i want it to be a surprise for people because it blew me away so even though the film's 55 years old at this point right and my my math is correct on this i still i don't want to talk about it i want Mm -hmm. people to experience this firsthand i don't know if you guys agree with that or not i can easily be swayed no, it's a jaw-dropper, and, and yeah, can't say anything. Yeah, yeah, I'll just leave it. The only thing that we've said so far and the um, is the mirroring, and I think that that, that is beautifully done. And as a matter of fact, I had to wind it back because like the end-end, like, it's so quick. Um, it's like less than a minute, the end-end. And um, I was like, did I see that correctly? And then I was like, oh, yeah, I guess so. So <laughs> that's all I want to say. All right. All right, at this point, we're going to go ahead and take a break and play an interview with David Desser, author of Eros Plus Massacre, an introduction to the Japanese New Wave film, and Japanese subtitler and filmmaker Linda Hoagland after these brief messages. Hello from Cinema Detroit, Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema. We deliver an eclectic mix of current indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine for his or her guests, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or occasionally the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former school and a warm hometown atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.com, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Tumblr. We look forward to seeing you soon at 3420 Cass Avenue in Midtown Detroit, 48201. Are you tired of the same old stuff Hollywood puts out week after week? You know, all those less than appealing remakes. 
Those films with over-the-top CG and no storyline? Well, we don't have to take it anymore thanks to the 2015 B-Movie Celebration. Polyscope Media presents the 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration. In 2015, we're going to go back in time, back to 1985 to be exact. The 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration will feature the following films from this time period. Fright Night. Malibu Express. The Last Dragon. Invasion USA. Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Return of the Living Dead. Trencers. Reanimator. Morons from Space. The Stuff. Life Force. Defcon 4. Damnation Alley. Better Off Dead. Godzilla 1985. Along with those 80s classics, we're going to showcase The Blob from 1958 and Death Race 2000 from 1975. So pack those bags, recharge that flux capacitor, and join us for the 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration on August 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2015 at the Brown County Playhouse in Nashville, Indiana. For updated information on this event, bookmark the bmoviecelebration.com website using your favorite browser, and we promise to have you home back in time. Titles mentioned in this promo are subject to change without notice. The Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast is an official sponsor of the 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration. Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that Taste forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler, and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2 in 1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? You wrote Eros Plus Massacre, an introduction to the Japanese New Wave Cinema, which is probably one of the most seminal books on Japanese New Wave. What kind of got your, you interested in that particular movement of Japanese cinema? I think my interest in the New Wave might have been piqued by reading both Audie Bach's book, Japanese Film Directors, uh, where her last chapter is on Oshimo Shinoda uh, and Iwamura. And also my interest, I know, was piqued by a very academic study called To the Distant Observer by Noel Birch, where he talks a lot about Oshima and a lot about, well, not a lot about Yoshida, but some about Yoshida and Shinoda. And at the time, which was the early 80s, uh, you could see or one could see a few of the New Wave films Oshima's Boy, The Man Who Left His Will on Film, and uh, I know Shinoda's Double Suicide. So those films were around uh, in the 70s and 80s in what used to be the uh, 16mm rental circuit from New Yorker films or from uh, Janus films. Uh, And so I certainly saw all of that. Uh, And so I think my interest was was peak. When my... uh, 
dissertation was published uh, as the samurai films of Akira Kurosawa. Uh, I was encouraged by uh, my university, the University of Illinois, to do uh, yet another book on Japanese cinema to uh, kind of establish my reputation. So in a certain way, I was literally looking for what should I write on on Japanese cinema. Uh, as I say, so all, the, all what I just said about the new wave and all the readings that I'd done, I decided to try and research it. So there were, I got a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to spend a summer in Japan. I saw probably 50 films <laughs> that summer. I also used the uh, facilities and the holdings of the Pacific Film Archive, uh, which didn't have much of the new wave per se, uh, but they had things of the same period that got me With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Kind of related to the new wave. And then, as I say, the rental market... I bought some stuff on VHS, but VHS in Japan, A, wasn't subtitled, but also was almost prohibitively expensive uh, in the 80s. Uh, most of the tapes were uh, in the neighborhood of uh, $80 or $90. So I didn't buy <laughs> too many VHS tapes. Uh, but I did get a, a, a chance to see movies in Japan through a couple of archives, including the Japan Foundation, uh, and also uh, whatever happened to be playing in town. So when, in, in those days in Tokyo, there were a lot of chances to see old movies. In, in the two months that I was there, there were a number of, uh, as I say, new wave-related or things that were pretty close to the new wave that I could see in theaters. That was, you know, that's how I got to see 50, about 50 films. Because, I mean, I pretty much saw a couple of films a day. That's how I got to, you know, see a lot of stuff that's in the Earl's Post Massacre. So, now, were those movies that you were seeing, were those subtitled? Some were, most weren't. Uh, the ones in the Japan Foundation were subtitled. Anything in the Japanese theater, of course, wasn't subtitled. And most of the stuff in the other places was not subtitled. They just, you know, were prints they had, or in, in, including, you know, some of the... Uh, some of the radical films by a, a small outfit called Image Forum. Uh, so they were 16 millimeter, but they weren't subtitled. But you know, I had not minored in Japanese for my uh, my PhD in cinema at USC. My minor was Japanese, so I did some language study and some culture. So you know, I, I got by. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> not bad for a white boy. Some films that I saw without subtitles that I thought were pretty. Uh, uh, beyond me, 
when I would later see them with subtitles as the years went by, uh, it wasn't that they were beyond me because of language, it's that they were really murky movies. <laughs> Couldn't make heads or tails of them in any case. <laughs> so, there, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a big disadvantage. <laughs> Of course, if I didn't know Japanese at all, I don't think I would have, you know, undertaken it, but it was good. The thing that, you know, was most important for my Japanese was I conducted some interviews, which which were, they shed some light, but I interviewed, uh, oh, about, at least as I, I can name off the top of my head, six directors that I interviewed. So uh, most most uh, most of them are not as comfortable speaking in English as uh, in Japanese, obviously. So between my Japanese and their English, we uh, we got by. And a couple of times, I actually used a translator with me if I really was, you know, trying to probe. For you, what kind of marks what the Japanese new wave is? Is it a particular style? Is it a particular group of filmmakers? How do you define what Japanese new wave cinema is? Well, what I tried to do was demonstrate the commonality of themes, uh, you know, what I call themes or interests that they had. That would include an interest in uh, in, in focusing on youth and young people, uh, in focusing on women, uh, in focusing on the dispossessed, uh, the kind of people that don't get uh, talked about as much. And this dispossessed doesn't necessarily mean uh, just uh, just people of lower caste, but also uh, working-class youths, uh, working-class people who get left behind in Japan's rush to material success. So there was a commonality of interests and focus, uh, and then at the same time, uh, at least a general willingness to really break uh, some of the ways of telling stories on screen and showing, uh, especially the style, their, some of their, their narrative uh, focus wasn't necessarily as uh, as cracked, let's say, as some of the uh, uh, European new waves, but certainly a lot of their stylistic devices, especially Oshima and uh, Yoshida, could be could be quite uh, quite radical in their in their uh, refusal to tell stories, uh, but picturesquely, or in the case of Yoshida, overly picturesquely. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I tried to do some comparisons, uh, and it's not, it's not, they're not unuseful. I mean, Oshima, in a certain way, could be compared to Godard, though Oshima was immediately and more obviously political than Godard, just kind of the myth of Godard's politics until, you know, the late 60s. But uh, Oshima's style and, and willingness to, to really be kind of kooky. <laughs> uh, and then the Yoshida, the... Uh, a model was, uh, in many ways, Antonioni uh, in some of his framing strategies and also a minimalist dialogue. So the films had as much in common or, or more with European avant-garde uh, features than with Japanese cinema. That's what I imagined the New Wave to be, a, a loosely connected group of filmmakers uh, unsurprisingly, many around the same age. Uh, I have a theory about film movements are often made by a group of directors who share similar backgrounds and are, and some of their similar backgrounds come from their being raised in their culture at a similar time. So similar ages actually is as, is as important to making a movement uh, as almost anything else. Uh, and if you go and look at who made the... Uh, 
French New Wave or the uh, Japanese New Wave or the Hollywood films of the 70s, uh, you'll find that the filmmakers are within 10 years of each other and usually less, <laughs> like almost within five years of each other in age. So it's just a little thing that I've discovered over the years. <laughs> what years was the Japanese New Wave movement? Oh, well, it certainly begins in 1960. There's no there's no question of that. There's a, there's a real... In fact, Shochiku gave a, a couple of dozen young directors their breaks in 1960, uh, and then when they did that, they called them. They called it the Shochiku New Wave. So there was no... Uh, I mean, you know, you could, you could include other filmmakers, as I do, uh, but uh, there's no question that it's 1960. And in 1960, there's... A, and, there's a coincidence of other filmmakers releasing films. And if you put in 1961, <laughs> uh, then you get a whole bunch of films from all over the place. Uh, and then I, I say the new wave, uh, you know, you can't sustain a, a, a wave for very long. But basically, uh, the rest of the 60s until about 72 uh, and then it's, it kind of dissipates, and it dissipates for various reasons. But from 60 to 72, uh, you get the a whole, you know, group of filmmakers. And I include, in my, in my understanding of the new wave, I include some documentary filmmakers uh, as well, which is often not done. Uh, you know, you don't, uh, you don't often hear about documentary filmmakers making their films at the same time as theatrical feature films. Uh, but nevertheless, it's 60 to 72 for sure. Now, I know with something like a French New Wave, there was like the events of 1968 to really, you know, kind of fuel those guys. Were there similar events in Japan that, that kind of helped stoke the fires of rebellion? Uh, 1960 marked the uh, renewal, uh, the first time the renewal of the Japan-United States Mutual Security Pact uh, and anti-American feelings uh and Jap uh, an anti-Japanese militarist feelings or conservative, the the youth were just very unhappy uh, with Japan's alignment with America, which which they saw as a uh, as very much uh, involving Japan uh, in the nuclear arms uh, and uh, America's anti-communism. Uh, put Japan in a you know in those days, remember that especially Japan's. Uh, pacifist constitution uh, which they're trying actually there's a movement in Japan now by right wing people to try and uh, change the constitution but Japan's pacifist constitution made Japan very much dependent on American military uh, uh, defense so the uh, America's militarist actions put the Japanese in a, in a particularly uh, vulnerable position uh, and second of all, the uh, alignment with America and American anti-communism really gave the young Japanese a sense that the Japanese conservatives were kind of ruling the country, uh, and there were movements to, to sort of increase Japanese military uh, uh, capabilities. So the, pro the protests, uh, just as, as you say, in 1968 in France really politicized the French New Wave, uh, the Japanese New Wave was always politicized by... Uh, and then in 1970, uh, the second time, the second time the the mutual security pact was uh, to be renewed, reinvigorated the new wave, uh, and so that's why I say you have it in 1960 with the first set of demonstrations, then again in 1970, uh, and that's why around 72 it kind of dissipates, and then there are no more uh, major protests 
against the renewal of the Japan America Security Pact after 1970. Uh, you make it small ones, but you have to, you know, when I say they, the, uh, they were politicized by the protests, the protests in 1916 and 1970 were massive. Uh, and it wasn't just young people, it wasn't just students, it was also uh, a lot of labor unions and, you know, other kind of left-wing organizations. So these were massive protests, similar uh, to 1968. In, in, in fact, France in 1968 inspired uh, the Japanese in 1970 uh, to become, in fact, a little bit more violent and a little bit more militant in the uh, in the protests. Uh, and also, in 1970, you had a lot of protests against the war in Vietnam, and so Japan, the Japanese uh, young and the left was very much against the American intervention in Vietnam. So you had a lot of uh, socio-political events uh, happening. When it comes to, sorry, to keep harping on the French New Wave, but that's kind of like my gateway into New Wave movements. When it comes to the French New Wave, they were really playing against genre a lot of, of the time. I mean, Truffaut with Shoot the Piano Player, Godard with uh, Breathless, these kind of things. Did the Japanese filmmakers play within kind of genre conventions, the whole idea of like the Yakuza film, the Sun Tribe movies, these kind of things? But the Sun Tribe movies uh, were not quite the genre. I mean, there was a bunch of them, but I don't think they were ever a genre. But they were certainly the uh, the clear precursor to the Japanese New Wave. That's absolutely the case. But as far as Japan's more traditional genres, uh, the only one that... Uh, they played with was the melodrama. Uh, but otherwise, uh, they also used some of the more traditional culture, like uh, kabuki. Uh, to uh, Shinoda was especially interested in, in playing with kabuki, and Yoshida was especially interested in playing with melodrama. Uh, but if you think of the traditional Japanese genres, like the classic Yakuza or the samurai film, uh, or the mother film, uh, or even the Japanese musical, uh, the answer is uh, not so much. Uh, and the same thing, you know, the French were interested in, in, re, in reconfiguring American genres, uh, and the Japanese uh, didn't do too much of that either. Uh, so I would say it was less, uh, less Hollywood-oriented and less uh, kind of generic in, in the sense of anti-genre. <laughs> Some of the filmmakers, Japanese filmmakers we've talked about on the show before have, have included Seijin Suzuki, Fukusaku, and uh, Teriyama. Do you see those? I mean, of course I see Teriyama really fitting into the new wave. Do you see the other filmmakers as kind of fitting into that camp at all? Yes. My my discovery, <laughs> so to speak, in, uh, when I was in Japan in 84, which, by the way, was the first time I was ever in Japan, <laughs> uh, was uh, was Suzuki. Uh, whom I thought was both. Now he he does he does what you talk about, which is play with genre. Uh, and uh, I didn't see enough of Suzuki at the time. If I redid the, in my book, uh, I would probably insist more of Suzuki's centrality to the new wave uh, than I did in the book, where I where I, I have a couple of his films as very much, you know, within the new wave. But yeah, the answer is yes. Suzuki was interested in young people, uh, and Suzuki's style was fairly uh, radical. Uh, and he, of course, was was doing with genre. I was thinking, when you asked about genre, I was thinking of Oshima or Imamura 
or, or Hani, uh, who didn't, you know, didn't take older genres and kind of uh, play with them. But Suzuki took the uh, genres that Mikatsu was was doing, uh, was working with, and uh, uh, he uh, he radicalized them with his form <laughs> as much as anything. Although his one of his masterpieces uh, is uh, Elegy to Violence, and that's certainly a youth movie. And another of his masterpieces is. Uh, Shumpuden, story of a prostitute, and that is uh, also, you know, centrally about women. So he he is uh, working in a lot of what the new wave is doing, and so uh, the difference is that by the early to mid '60s, all of the new wave directors that you know you would call new wave, new wave, so to speak, uh, were independent filmmakers. Uh, and until he was fired in 1967, uh, Suzuki was. Uh, uh, Nikatsu director. So he was, you know, in a certain way, twisting as much as he could uh, the, uh, the form at the studio, whereas the other guys did have a, you know, have a whole lot more freedom uh, to pursue and, you know, they could say what they wanted kind of directly. So Suzuki is not always uh, politicized. He's not always new wave, but uh, most of his films are pretty, uh, you know, especially, I would say, you know, precisely because they're relatively political and fairly radical in its style that those films of his make the new wave grade, so to speak. <laughs> For Fukusaku, I would say that uh, he was twisting and doing interesting things with the Yakuza genre, of course, uh, but I wouldn't say that he was necessarily new wave about it. Uh, uh, so he's kind of tangential, maybe, at best, uh, even though he... Uh, de-glamorized and demythologized the previous Yakuza movies, but he didn't do it in necessarily a, a kind of new wave way. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'd have to think about it. I mean, I've seen a lot of this, but now, I hadn't seen his Yakuza films uh, at the time I did the new wave book. Uh, you know, there just wasn't enough time, or I, I hadn't, no one had actually mentioned that he was a possible new wave candidate. So in Heroes Plus Massacre, uh, he may be mentioned, I can't remember offhand, but he may be mentioned in passing. But uh, if I redid the book, I'd have to think about his uh, his great Yakuza films of the 60s as as at least interestingly tangential to the new wave. And Teriyama, as you say, is, is and I agree with you, is central to the new wave, both as a filmmaker, uh, but also as a screenwriter. Uh, since he, he wrote a couple of the classic new wave films, and all of his movies are... Uh, definitely within the new wave canon no no question about it now if new wave cinema in japan were to have a face it seems like the face would be that of nagisa oshima is that a pretty fair statement to make it's a totally fair statement to make absolutely <laughs> where does this guy come from and why is he kind of the godfather of japanese new wave they do it a little differently in japan but as an undergraduate at kyoto university he was a law studied law but for whatever reason, he decided to go uh, into the uh, Shochiku assistant director system. And when you went into the studios, you started as an assistant director, and then eventually you'd get a chance to become a director. Uh, he was uh, active uh, among the assistant directors in the mid-50s in uh, writing scenarios and uh, uh, talking theory. And uh, he was very well educated in film. He wrote a lot of film criticism while he was an assistant director. Uh, he was very knowledgeable about what was going on uh, in in Japanese movies. He was attracted immediately to the 
new wave precursors, uh, which include uh, Nakahira Ko and uh, Yasuzo Masumura. Uh, he loved their films immediately. Uh, and he uh, was pretty aggressive, I guess, and he petitioned or he found a way to make the first of the, he was the first of his class of new wave of, of assistant directors to make a movie uh, called, uh, he called it The Boy Who Lost His Pigeon. Uh, the studio retitled it The Town of Love and Hope, uh, uh, which is available now. It was, I couldn't see that when I did my book in the 80s, but uh, I, in fact, now have a copy of that on uh, DVD. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's a pretty. I mean, it's pretty clear that it belongs both to the '50s uh, kind of youth rebellion movies. Uh, its style was pretty, pretty straightforward for Oshima. But uh, somehow, when he made his next film, uh, *Cruel Story of Youth*, he just really went all out. Uh, and uh, it was. Uh, it really is the. Uh, you could you could make it the paradigm of the early '60s youth film, maybe uh, a new wave film. He just captured it. The style is very radical. Uh, he handles cinemascope uh, in a radical way. Uh, he handles sound in a radical way. He uses he uses the long take in, in a way different than uh, the classical Japanese directors had done it. And he, of course, he makes a film that's obviously kind of rebellious, and he sets it against the background of the anti security pact treaties <laughs> so he, he puts his he puts his young characters right there uh, in the historical moment and uh, he's very pessimistic a lot of the new wave films are uh, are pretty uh, i call them apocalyptic you know these youth movies where the characters die at the end in kind of spectacular ways <laughs> he's the easy rider syndrome uh, if you will uh but this of course is well before that uh, and it's fairly, uh, you know, it's in color, which is interesting because, you know, we think of artistic and art movies in, in, in black and white. So if you get a good color print of it, it's pretty garish. So he's, he's, he's using all of the uh, cinematic tools in a, in a pretty wild way. So he puts it all together in, in, the, in what might be the first movie. <laughs> uh, and then everybody, uh, and then he just, he just keeps it up. So he's like the best in the early 60s, and then in the late 60s, he's also right on top of it with uh, films like The Man Who Left His Will on Film, Death by Hanging, uh, and Diary of a Shinjuku Thief. He, he's just uh, got his finger on the pulse. Uh, so, uh, you know, they reached a popular audience, they reached an international audience. Boy, Boy is it's pretty much is a straightforward film, but it's, it's still pretty radical and angry, and in 19... 69. I mean, boy had a had a uh, international release, and it was available for rental by from New Yorker Films in the 70s. So, you know, sometimes what happens is, you know, people who get released uh, become the public face. Uh, but my feeling is that Oshima's Oshima deserves his uh, reputation uh, as the premier director. Uh, and if you want to know the second director, who's I think a slightly underrated. Uh, that would, in fact, uh, be Imamura, Shohei Imamura, uh, who, uh, who I think really deserves a lot of credit for, uh, for his films. And he's also become much more available. You can get a lot of Imamura films nowadays, like through Criterion, uh, than, you know, you could. He, he was never represented, uh, or one or two of his films were represented back in the, say, in the 70s, but now you can get. Almost, not all, but almost all of Ima Moore's films. Uh, and interestingly, he had the best career after the new wave. 
New Wave directors, none of them, none of them are important after the early 1970s. Uh, Oshima didn't work that much, and of course, you know, we we know his uh, the, the porno movie that he made <laughs> in the realm of the senses. But after that, Oshima is not an important director at all, and that's 75. Uh, and Shinoda, who kept working but never really had a big hit, and Yoshida couldn't couldn't make too many films. But Imamura just kept on working, and his stuff remained pretty uh, pretty interesting for the whole of his career. Yeah, it's kind of sad to me that like so many of uh, Oshima's stuff. I mean, he does seem to be overshadowed these days, anyway, by uh, or for a while. I don't know if it is these days, but in the realm of the senses, kind of put him on the map for a lot of people. Yeah. And then after that, it was just you know, I mean, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which is just a fantastic film. But then something like Max Montemore, where you're just scratching your head, going, "What the hell is this thing?" That's right. That's right. Well, he only made four, like four films. I mean, you mentioned you know he followed in the realm of the senses with uh, Empire of Passion, which you know looked like a kind of less less uh, porno imitation <laughs> in some ways of of the previous one. Max Moore was, as you say, a head scratching mystery. Uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence uh, didn't you know is a respectable film for sure. Uh, at the time, people didn't like it much. Then of course he had a stroke in his final film Taboo. You know, I did all right, but uh, I don't. I don't think the the subject was as interesting to some people. <laughs> he did. He did. You know, take the classic samurai movie and try to. Uh, you know, he made what was essentially a samurai movie about the homosexuality of the samurai. That wouldn't have been a popular film among people who liked good old-fashioned samurai movies. <laughs> but uh, that was his last film. Yeah, I mean, in the realm of the census, certainly put him on the map. Although, as I say, boy, boy, put him on the map in a general way. And in the realm of the census, it's kind of like if you, if you think about Wong Kar Wai, Wong Kar Wai was put on the map by uh, Chungking Express, but then a much larger audience found him within the mood for love. <laughs> and the same thing with Oshima. Boy, put him on the map, but but then a much larger audience uh, found him for uh, in the realm of the senses. But you know, after that, he never he never did make an important film. Yeah, it, just for so many years, it was so tough to find like Death by Hanging or Diary of a Shinjuku it was, Thief. It was, yeah, if you want a if you want a legal subtitled quality copy, you can't you can't find one. Uh, so it still is tough to find those. Uh, the Man Who Left His Will on Film and Shinjuku Thief and Death by Hanging and Boy, they're they're all they're all. Well, not a bit. And the same thing with Yoshida. I mean, you can't you can't find anything. Uh, uh, now I'm involved with a, a company out of Great Britain. Uh, I think it'll just be Region Two, but they're trying to uh, or Region Zero Pal. They're trying to put together uh, copies of uh, subtitled copies of Eros Plus Massacre, Heroic Purgatory, and Coup d'État, so the so-called Yoshida political trilogy. Uh, and they want to put it out with some uh, essay and commentary by me. Uh, so hopefully that will... Uh, it was supposed to get done by now, but they, they're having some problems, so I hope it doesn't fall apart. But that would be a very nice thing to have legal copies, uh, subtitled quality copies of those three movies by Yoshida. But otherwise, there's no Yoshida. I mean, it's terrible. I mean, he made at least a dozen films before that. Why do you feel that this is such an underrepresented movement of film, at least in Western society? Well, that's very easy. The Japanese uh, themselves don't do very many films with, subtitle, with English subtitles. 
because they don't think there's enough money in it for them to do it, and they don't want to sell the rights to somebody else to do it because they wouldn't get enough money. You know, anyone in this country or in England would know that the uh, the market is uh, somewhat small, so the the kind of money that you could offer is, uh, you know, yeah, it's it's too. It, the Japanese are not interested in it because there's not enough money in their opinion, and that's the that's the simple truth. <laughs> If you look at what Criterion has done, uh, and if you look at what uh, the UK has done, uh, a lot of the stuff uh, is other studios besides Shochiku. Uh, and Shochiku is the ones that have uh, these early films by Yoshida. They're all Shochiku until the mid-60s. The rights to some of the later stuff might be contested. Uh, who has the rights to... Uh, you know those those radical Oshima films. Now that now that Oshima is passed on, who knows? Uh, but the big studios think they, that there's no money in it, uh, and the avant-garde films maybe. You know, you'd have to really uh, put up a lot of money to, to to get the quality. I don't know, but I do know the big studios are really bad about it. <laughs> you know, if you compare it, every Korean movie comes out with uh, subtitles in a good quality DVD. It's a reason three, but nevertheless, a good quality DVD with English subtitles, all Korean movies. The same is certainly not true of Japanese movies. And when the Japanese do put subtitles on the occasional movie, they're at least twice as much as anybody else's DVDs. You know, the Japanese Region 2 DVDs. Very expensive. So... It's just uh, a lack of interest in, uh, you know, they don't do it to, for the educational market, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird. The the criterion, I know they've put out a few things here and there, and especially on their Eclipse um, label, they did some stuff. But it seems like they're doing a lot of things through Hulu. So, like, every once in a while, I'll, people will be talking about, oh, yeah, I saw this um, Masahiro Shinoda film on Hulu, and it's still not available any place else and it's like wow this is it's not hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's that people are able to see this stuff, but again, it's no, like... The, uh... The Hulu stuff is the Criterion Collection, and I think that the Criterion, I could be wrong, uh, but I believe that the stuff on Hulu is from the Criterion Janus Collection, so that they got the rights from the people who used to have the non-theatrical rights. Uh, but the other thing is, when you mentioned correctly the Eclipse stuff, uh, that's a Nikatsu. See, not all the studios are, are bad. <laughs> It, it's mostly, it's Shochiku is bad, Toho is a little bit less bad, 
but uh, Nikatsu has been very willing. So there's a <clears throat> there's a very nice uh, number of films uh, from the UK called Masters of Cinema, uh, and the Japanese films that they have are also uh, typically not shochiku movies. So Nikatsu has been willing to deal the shochiku less so in terms of money. But as I say, I think Hulu, the stuff from Criterion on Hulu, I think is all from the Criterion DVDs. Uh, but, you, you know, it's possible that they have some stuff. But I believe everything that they have on Hulu is also available on DVD. In their set, like that's $500. <laughs> One of the things I like the most about Oshima is that he crosses genre lines and you never necessarily know what you're going to get other than you know the in the realm of the senses empire of passion each film is so radically different from the previous films for me what are some of the things though that kind of hold up for you as far as his themes that he's exploring in all these movies i think his themes are very consistent i just think he gets more uh more interesting or sometimes he does a better job than others but I mean, the brilliance of a death by hanging is un, un, you know, unequivocal. But I think he was interested in, you know, I think he was influenced by Godard by that time. Uh, but I think his films hold up because the politics uh, and the style. I showed a, the Criterion put out these, this group, what they call it, Oshima, the radical 1960s or something like that. So they got the rights to five of Oshima's uh, very little known movies. Uh, and so I showed the Japanese body song to my class on Japanese cinema. And the students had like, it was their least favorite film of the semester. <laughs> they, had, they had no idea what it was about. <laughs> the style was still so radical <laughs> with these moving camera long takes going back and forth. Uh, so in a certain way, Oshima is as radical as he ever was you know, 40 years, 50 years down the road. <laughs> I take it as a good thing that they thought the body song was their least favorite film of the semester because they couldn't make heads or tails of it. But it, you, actually, you can make heads or tails of it. But they did, you know, and I sort of tried to explain it to them, but they didn't, uh, <laughs> they nevertheless didn't like it after the fact still. But he really, he really does hold up. Uh, uh, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, not all of the films are masterpieces, but the one, you know, some of the ones that are less well-known, like Japanese Body Song or Three Resurrected Drunkards, uh, they're, they're really worth, uh, they're, you know, they really should be thought of, you know, at the top of the list of some of his films. And it's nice that, you know, so many of his films are available. You know, it's just like now the... Uh, Criterion is re is releasing the Ozu films of the 1930s, you know, which should really give you a much fuller picture of Ozu's uh, themes and styles. We, uh, you know, he was uh, he was canonized just on a very small group of films from the 50s, but now that you get a chance to see, you know, the rest of them, you can really uh, appreciate him more. And I think the same is true of Oshima. That the more the more you see, the more the better he gets. <laughs> It's just uh, no question about it. He was a nice guy, too. Uh, he's a little standoffish, but I did interview him, but he was very nice. Uh, he was very honest. Uh, but because he was the most famous, he had been, you know, interviewed and, you know, by the most. So I think he did have, you know, kind of stock answers. But if you probed him with a question that he hadn't 
had before. He he kind of came to life. But he was very nice, you know, willing to meet uh, people he'd never heard of in his office <laughs> to interview him. <laughs> you talked about a, a little bit about if you had uh, a chance to revisit Eros Plus Massacre, you'd probably have a little bit more Suzuki in there. What kind of other things, um, kind of hidden gems, did you find after uh, the book came out? Well, I would pay more tribute to uh, to the uh, film called Crazed Fruit, which I hadn't had a chance to see, actually. Don't tell anybody. But I hadn't had a chance to see Crazed Fruit uh, when I did uh, Eros Plus Massacre. Uh, Crazed Fruit, which was a Nikatsu movie, came out from Criterion a few years back. Uh, and when I had a chance to see it, it really was a revelation to me because its style is very close. I mean, it's basically a new wave movie. Uh, in, in, its style is, you know, there, there's some interesting moments where... Uh, he kind of breaks the fourth wall, and, and it's almost a documentary. And uh, so, I would certainly uh, have at least another full page, if not more, on Crazed Fruit. Uh, and I would have more to say about about some of the Suzuki. I don't know what other hidden gems. Well, you brought it up before. I might have to think about Fukusaku a bit. Uh, I just think I would have a a, a greater appreciation for the. Uh, cinematic context uh you know just just having seen more films of the 60s i uh, i would just be able to say you know what was going on what was being made uh a lot of people have you know written on the 60s japanese cinema subsequently so i probably have to you know incorporate some of their research or some of their insights i don't know if i would do it but uh there's been a new book on uh, on the '60s that talks a lot about its connections with uh, uh, avant the uh, art avant-garde underground kind of art, <laughs> uh, you know, non uh, totally non-theatrical, or uh, the the way in which some of the films are kind of related to journalism, and think, you know, what was going on. So, you know, a lot's been said. I don't know how much I would incorporate, but. At least once in a while, I'd like to say more. But for me, the biggest revelation was how how close to the new wave crazed fruit is. It's you know it's one of the Tayo Zoku type movies, but boy oh boy, it really is good. And then oddly enough, he he never was a major director in Japan after that, and he made three very good movies in Hong Kong, and even re, even remade Crazed Fruit in Hong Kong. He knew it was a good movie. <laughs> He remade it in Hong Kong, but it wasn't as nowhere near as good in Hong Kong. But for Hong Kong movie fans, a, a Shaw Brothers movie called Summer Heat is the remake of Crazed Fruit by the same director. <laughs> yeah, you talked about that whole idea of the the doom and the characters dying at the end. And when you said that, my mind immediately went to the films of Wakamatsu just because his stuff is so dark. Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, there's been a lot of interest in Wakamatsu uh since then and of course he he continues oh he continued to make more films so i, I actually my I, mean, I only talked in detail about two two akamatsu movies and there's uh, there's a couple more that others uh, that other people think are important but uh, yes definitely akamatsu's uh, combination of sex and violence is <laughs> <it's> pretty <laughs> Now his films you mentioned. How did I see him? His films uh, I actually saw in 16 millimeter without subtitles over in uh, this small company called Image Forum. But they were very nice. They were very nice to me. Where I just went over to their offices and 
they just, you know, projected these Wakamatsu movies for me. <laughs> uh, that Now, that's one thing that I haven't... See, a lot of writing has been done subsequently to my book in English on the uh, on the pink movie and Roman porno. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I talk about Wakamatsu, uh, but there are other... Uh, pink movie filmmakers of the 60s that people have subsequently, you know, a kind of acclaimed for their radical vision. Uh, so if I had to do Heroes Plus Massacre again, I might have to uh, incorporate that. I'm not a fan of uh, of the genre so much, so I, I didn't kind of go out of my way to see uh, to see others. But Wakamatsu I was aware of, and I did get a chance to see well, I certainly saw Violated Angels in White and the Go Go Second Time Virgin. <laughs> uh, I don't remember. Yeah, great titles. Yes, they do. They do. Uh, I don't know if I saw any others at the time. Well, you'd think I would have, but uh, uh, I didn't. It would be nice, you know, what I would like to do if I could. Uh, I have, they're yet undiscovered gems, and that is I would like to see some more of the Shochiku director's films who were given the guys who were given their chance in 1960 besides Shinoda Oshima and Yoshida right the only one that i know is the uh, is the very interesting Adachi Masao who abandoned filmmaking to join the uh, the red army and then eventually went to Lebanon and then came back and made a film subsequently recently <laughs> which I haven't seen, but, you know, that's all I know. I mean, it would, you know, a couple dozen directors got their chance to make movies. I'd love to see some of that other stuff from 1960, for instance. That would be very nice, you know. So, as yet unknown to me, <laughs> uh, you know, if they're any good or whatever, uh, I would like to, I'd like to see those. You know, what's interesting is, you know, I, I link them by a, a theme or style or whatever, but a lot of them, as I say, by the mid '60s, a lot of them were just you know independent. So it's a uh, it's a matter of who who do I include? You know, sometimes it's just a matter of kind of choice. <laughs> and you know, you see the same thing in France. How you know how close is Louis Malle to the central of the new wave? You know, et cetera, or, or any other you know. Or what's his name? Philippe de Broca, much more commercial, but using the great Belmondo, right? So uh, it, these things are always. Uh, there's one or two people that have come along since my book came out that that claim there was no Japanese new wave, but they they haven't gotten that much traction. Well, I, mean, I mean, I understand if you think about it. If you think about Crazed Fruit in 1956. And I said, that's really a new wave movie. And then I say the new wave begins in 1960. You know, you can see where there's certainly some tension. <laughs> but you can also see that in, you know, 56, 57, it doesn't, it, you know, Masamura comes around or Kawashima. Sure, but that's not quite the same as, you know, a half a dozen to a dozen directors making film after film after film. Right? So you could say there's certainly precursors to the new wave. <laughs> Uh, but I, I stand by the idea that there is a new wave and that there are some really, really clear precursors. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean there wasn't a new wave. Now, I know you said you're still teaching. Are you uh, Are you working on any writing at the moment? I've been writing a lot of essays on Japanese stuff, uh, but it's kind of haphazard. I'm not working uh, as far as Japanese cinema is concerned. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I have no book 
uh, except in a, a very, well, I shouldn't say that. I'm doing two anthologies. <laughs> I should say I have no book. I'm doing two anthologies. One is a, it won't, one is I'm doing with somebody else on Imamura, on Shohei Imamura. And, and we're going to be almost, almost completely thorough, uh, with, with his entire career. There's only one film of his that we couldn't find anybody to write on. <laughs> so we'll have almost every single film of Imamura will get an essay. Uh, and I'm writing, I'm writing an essay on, in that book on the eel. I don't know if you've ever seen the eel. Oh God, it's a 19, uh, it's a 1997 movie. Uh, but it's really terrific. Uh, I've always loved it. And so, uh, somebody actually approached me to co-edit the book with him. And I said, oh yeah, sure. And let me do the eel because I love it so much. So here's a chance to write on it. Uh, and the other thing I'm doing is a really long, big, fat anthology on, on Japanese cinema that's going to have 30, 30 essays, new essays in it. So, but yeah, but I have no, uh, no individual book, uh, like Heroes Plus Massacre that, uh, that I'm working on, uh, for, for Japanese cinema. I did publish an essay very recently on Japanese film noir from 1957 forward in a book called International Film Noir which started, you know, from that Eclipse series that they that Criterion called Nikatsu Noir. And that's a good example of, you know, Nikatsu being willing to deal with uh, with an American distributor. Uh, and there's a Suzuki movie in there. So, you know, he's part of uh, what they call Nikatsu Noir. Uh, so I begin there and follow Noir up through uh, the present day, or neo-noir, so to speak. We're doing um, Cruel Story of Youth and was hoping to talk to you a bit about that a little bit and, of course, uh, your film Ampo because uh, that plays in the background in the film. Cruel Story of Youth is the one that starts with the demonstrations, right? The Ampo demonstrations. Yeah. That was the thing that I wanted to ask you about is what does that acronym stand for? ANPO is the Japanese abbreviation for the U.S.-Japan Mutual Security Treaty. And for those who aren't uh, hip to the history, what exactly did that treaty sort of spell out post-war? Yeah, that the United States military could stay and do whatever it wanted. It's just that simple? Yeah. So basically, it was a, it was a deal that was made secretly. Japan wanted to get back out from occupation, right? Japan, the U.S. occupied Japan from 45 to 52, so there was seven years of occupation, and the United States said, okay, you can get your sovereignty back, but you have to sign this treaty. And the first one was signed completely in secret by the Prime Minister Yoshida. And it said that the United States can maintain armed forces throughout Japan, and it can fight wars from there. And indeed, they fought the Korean War uh, from the Japanese bases. And of course, ultimately, they fought the Vietnam War from mostly the bases in Okinawa. In the film, Cruel Story of Youth, there are those protests in the background. When did those start to sort of flare up, and what was the context for those original protests? So the first treaty was signed secretly in 52, and then the treaty, the Japanese wanted to revise it to try to make it slightly more advantage for the Japanese. I mean, the Americans who, who drew up the treaty basically called it the most unfair treaty ever signed by two parties. You know, it gave Japan nothing. And so they tried to revise it, but then at the same time they were extending it for another 10 years. 
under just, you know, slightly improved conditions. And the Japanese who were demonstrating were demonstrating against extending it for 10 years. The protests were driven by two enormously powerful, at the time, enormously powerful groups. One was the labor movement and one was the student movement. And the student movement was inspired by the fact that um, in 1960, people who had been, you know, two and three years old were students. Because the U.S. firebombed 65 cities, everybody remembered being firebombed as a toddler. And they were terrified of being dragged back into war because the United States was basically using the bases in Japan as a, as a launching ground. They were terrified that it would, in turn, become a target. The bases in Japan would become a target, and they'd get sucked back into war. That was a massive overriding fear. And if you... I can't remember. Have you seen Ampo? Yeah. You know, if, if you remember some of that archival footage, I mean, you see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of businessmen linking arms and marching. You know, it's a very unusual situation to see businessmen linking arms and demonstrating against something. And it was just that, you know, the memories of war were, were too traumatic. When watching Cruel Story of Youth, there's this feeling of, and it may not be the appropriate word, but almost sort of a nihilism, like some of the characters in there really feel that there is kind of no future, or they feel very put upon. And, um, you know, what's what's interesting is this plays against the whole concept of, at least in the West, as we're told, you know, the post-war boom that, you know, business boomed and, and all of this stuff was happening in Japan in the, in the 50s and early 60s. Do you, you know, was that the case? Did you see, um, you know, that sort of youth looking around and going, you know, what, you know, what is this that we, you know, fresh hell we have to deal with? The boom was the result of the protests that ended catastrophically. So what happened was that there were these in very intense protests. An elite student was trampled to death, and basically the clock ran out on uh, the extension of the treaty. It was basically a parliamentary maneuver. And so a woman died the treaty was passed, everybody who had the whole country, millions of people demonstrating, proved to be futile. But the government was terrified by this unbelievable, you know, you don't, when you see businessmen demonstrating, you have a problem. So they said, okay, what we need to do is harness all this energy, put them to work, and incentivize them by doubling their income. So they, they, that created the boom Everybody realized it was futile to demonstrate, and then there was a lot of incentive to work like dogs, to, to become prosperous and find their way into kind of a true middle class. So the boom, the boom was a deliberate policy decision made by the government to harness the energy of the protesters and turn it into industrial economic energy. When you look out now on this issue of the the bases and the original protests and that has it gotten any better now that we're at you know 70 years or so past the war 
No, it's exactly the same. Um, I, and I and I say that because I um, I actually just kind of um, reviewed a new documentary uh, that's made about the situation in in Okinawa. If you remember from um, my film Ampo, I I filmed a beautiful um, sort of tropical bay and um, said that the United States had plans to build it to turn. I mean, you know, you should try to write about this or talk about it in the way that as simple as possible, because it's it's a complex story that in which you don't want the details to mask the fact that the U.S. and the Japanese government are just jerking Okinawa around. So in 15 years ago, a 12-year-old girl was raped by three Marines and the island went up in flames. And as a way to deal with the protests, the U.S. said, okay, we'll move the Futema Air Base, which is a Marine Corps air base, away from a densely centered middle of the island, densely populated center of the island, and we'll move it, we'll move it away. And then they were like, well, move it away, move it away. Nobody else in Japan wants it. Whoops, we're not going to move it away. We'll just remove it to a more remote, quote-unquote, area of Okinawa, and that turns out to be that pristine bay with the last coral reef in Okinawa, which the Marine Corps needs to destroy in order to build an enormous port. And in the last year, the protests, they've they've started construction. Since Abe became prime minister, they've started the construction for the port. And daily, there are protesters and kayakers out in the waters whom the Coast Guard and the local police are um, trying to stop. It's hand-to-hand combat fighting because a lot of older Okinawans are prepared to die for this cause. So it's gotten unbelievably intense. And on a side note, you know, one of the people in the film is, um, you saw the news that Sugawara Bunta died, um, the lead of Battles Without Honor and Humanity. He went to Okinawa to rally for, in support of a new governor who um, is against the base. So like two weeks before he died, he's in Okinawa at a rally, saying, you know, the air and the sea and the land they don't belong to. The air and the sea don't belong to any government. They belong to you. And, you know, he left his inheritance to fight the base with. So his widow is now on the, it's called the Henoko Fund. And Miyazaki just joined up with the Henoko Fund. So, no, <laughs> nothing has changed. Filmmakers and actors are still, you know what I mean? Nothing's changed. And this is where, and we referenced it a few times, your film, documentary, Ampo, Art X War, brings in a lot of this and was really, I have to say, um, you know, I, I think I'm relatively educated, but here in the in the West, and we don't really know too much. Except, like I said, I do remember that uh, the Okinawa uh, rape case uh, because that was too big for them not to to run that when that happened. But um, can we kind of talk about your documentary, how that came together, and and what you really show in there uh, in terms of how these artists, as you were talking, um, Sagara Bunta and and filmmakers who have come together to uh, get behind this issue, behind this uh, question of uh, occupation or continued use of bases in the country? What what happened with Ampo is that I happened to come across a 
a very rare, obscure, now obscure photo, photo book called Days of Rage and Grief, which were the photographs of the 1960 demonstrations taken by a guy named Hamaya Hiroshi, who at the time was, the, I think he was the only Japanese member of the Magnum, Magnum Photo, very respected photojournalist, photographer, and I had never seen Japanese people looking like that. I had never seen this raw rage and grief and hope on the faces of Japanese people, certainly, you know, not assembled like that in public. And I thought, what the hell is this? I I was born and raised in Japan. I had no idea that any of this had gone down at all, period. I mean, even today, if you Google Ampo 1960 protests in English, there's very little about it available in English. And, you know, it was it was after the World War II and the atomic bombs. It was by far the most traumatic thing to happen in Japanese post-war history. And there was just very little written about it. So, But, I, of course, I could, you know, research in Japanese. And and then shortly after I found that photo book, then I, I happened to see on Japanese television on an art, a program about art, I saw a, a painting of peasants fighting police and it was this astonishing, large oil painting by a man named Nakamura Hiroshi of peasants fighting with Japanese police to get off their land because the Japanese police were enforcing what the U.S. military wanted, which was to extend an air base to accommodate jet planes. So you see, nothing has changed. You know what I mean? I mean, nothing. So basically then I thought, well, if there's a photographer and a painter, there must be more. And then I just started finding more and more and more artists of all kinds in Japan who had made their made art out of these protests. And I think, you know, in an essay I, I, I wrote that, you know, these protests in Japan were as compelling to artists Japanese artists, as apartheid was to South Africa, or the civil rights struggle was to artists in the U.S. You know, it's human beings alive with resistance, and it's an electrifying sight, and artists were just drawn to it, like to a magnet. So I found all this astonishing treasure trove of art that um, either had been in, that they were, that were in storage, Either the museums, in the 80s, the museums started to buy some of the work because some of the paintings were so incredible. Um, they were just astonishing. And, you know, and, and in point of fact, after I made the film, both the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the, Museum of, and the National Museum of Modern Art in Tokyo both had huge exhibits featuring the artwork that I had excavated. Now, you know, did they have the shows because I made the film? I don't know. But I think for curators right after the 1960s, the art was basically a painful reminder that everybody had sold out to the economic boom, and so nobody wanted to look at the, at, the, at the art. So it had either been put away in personal storage or in museum storage, and I, you know, I just went to museums all around Japan and filmed the art. And in the cases where the artists were still alive, which was mostly the case, I was able to interview the artists. Because the artists basically never sold out. I mean, some of them became successful and wealthy, but they all kind of kept a kind of a 
anti-authoritarian stance. And so their memories aren't cynical or jaded or uh, shameful. They, they kept out their art and, um, for the most part. So that's why I decided to focus almost exclusively on to tell the story of the protests through the art and the eyes of the artists. Um, I interviewed three journalists, Tim Weiner, who wrote the book on the CIA, and then two Japanese uh, sort of mainstream journalists because who had studied the period because I needed to, it couldn't be factually inaccurate. And artists don't tend to be that interested in the facts. They're more interested in creating art out of the facts. So that's why I had those journalists in there. And it's a great documentary, and I really enjoyed uh, seeing it and recently called uh, part of my DVD collection, but I did hold on to it. It's one of those that uh, is very... um, it's very informative and very moving at times in terms of the the people you talk to and your process when you put that together. How long did it uh, take from when you had the concept to completion? Just just about two years. Well, I guess I mean maybe two and a half. It took about six months to working with a researcher to get the research done, and that of course included you know I think there's about seven film clips in there. I mean, I was able to get the access that I got, I think, partly because I'd done my homework. And once I got the okay, the, the go-ahead, that I could use the photographs of Hamaya Hiroshi from his, the person who, who handles his estate and from Mr. Nakamura Hiroshi himself, kind of the, who's the strongest of the living painters. Once I had the okay of those two, I started to get a lot of yeses. Um, I think in my when I presented the project to the to the various prospective interviewees, they could see that I knew what I was talking about and that I would well, I was going to respectfully contextualize their art. But they were amazingly generous with their art and and I think and they were also very generous with their stories. I mean, for everyone, you know, over sixty five, I started with the question, Do you remember the fire bombings? And and I think starting the question that when everybody did, you know, whether they were one or two years old at the time, and I think starting the interview that way, I think it it opened opened them up into sharing raw memories that maybe they'd never talked about. You know, it's not like after the war people would sit around going, "Let's talk about the firebombing." So I felt that I was getting very raw, intimate stories from the artists. You talk about some of the clips that were in the documentary, but what are some of the key films for you that play against um, the the Ampo protests or the questions related to the bases and things like that, that that people could check out, both documentaries and also fiction features? Well, crew story of youth. <laughs> um, oh, Pigs and Battleships is by Imamura. It's interesting because part of my discovery of Ampo, 1960 Ampo, was through watching a lot of films, Japanese films, and wondering, like, in, so Imamura Shohei made Pigs and Battleships in 1961. It's the darkest film about the corruption that oozes out of an occupying military base into the streets around it that you could ever make. 
And his previous film that he'd made in 1959 was this like socialist, realist, hopeful, coal mining town kind of film. And I thought, what the hell happened between 59 and 61 to turn this optimistic filmmaker into the most jaded, cynical person? And if you trace even Naruse, who was all about entertainment, if you look at his films, 61, suddenly it gets incredibly, the tone gets dark. And in 1961, even Kurosawa made The Bad Sleep Well. Actually, that's 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 uh, end of 1960. He, they made movies so fast, and the Bad Sleep Well is a is a film in which there is a evil puppeteer manipulating everything, a, a, a you know cruel story of corruption, and the rumor is that the evil puppeteer mastermind was supposed to be the prime minister himself, who made a deal. The prime minister, who you know, if you recall from the film, had been arrested as a war criminal. He was part of Tojo's cabinet that signed the declaration of war against the U.S., and then he went and ran Manchuria. And so in 1945, he was arrested by the U.S. as a war criminal, and then he was released and became paid by the CIA, according to Tim Weiner. And today his grandson is the prime minister of Japan. So let's see. We have Pigs and Battleships, which is by Imamura Shohei, we have The Bad Sleep Well, which is by Kurosawa. And then Kobayashi uh, Masaki made a film. I'm just going to Google it. I think it's called Black River. Although Black River is um, 1956, but it, it's um, definitely about the U.S. military base. So it's interesting how you said that even sort of those who were making, you know, quote-unquote entertainment pictures were, were influenced by this that eventually, you know, got into the zeitgeist, into, you know, their work, even if they weren't directly referencing it. Yes, that's correct. I mean, partly, you know, as you know, as, as artists, we strive for metaphor. And, and there were documentaries made, but they, they didn't really survive the test of time very well. Even the documentaries that I use clips from, I use the clips for the visual images. Sort of the stridency of the narration and the music was a little too much. But I think people were pretty hysterically upset. As for yourself, uh, you have a new documentary project. Can you talk about that and how that's going? Oh, The Wound and the Gift? Right. Yeah, well, you know, I actually finished that. It it um, it premiered at uh, Vancouver last October, and um, it was in Doc NYC, and we're hoping to get um, some kind of distribution uh, in Japan and the U.S. It's a it's a film about rescued animals that I tell through a uh, ancient fable, ancient Japanese fable that is beautifully illustrated by a young illustrator originally from Hong Kong and narrated by Vanessa Redgrave. And I used the fable to interweave real-life footage from beautiful sanctuaries where rescued animals live. The fable is about a wounded crane that's saved by a peasant, and then the crane takes the form of a, a young woman to visit the peasant's house, and the peasant and his wife take her in and give her her shelter, and then she says to thank you, I'm going to weave a magical cloth, but you must make me one promise. You must not look upon me as I weave the magical cloth. And 
ultimately, of course, being human, they break their promise and they open the door to where she's weaving and they see that it's the crane who's plucking her own feathers to weave the cloth. I feel like the fable really foretells kind of the whole rescue animal crisis that we have in this planet, which is that, you know, humans can have a choice, which is they can save an animal or they can harm an animal. And um, and I actually end the film with a... We filmed in, in northern Japan where there's a village called the Crane Village and um, where the villagers, to save the cranes that were almost extinct, started feeding them their own food to get through the harsh winters. And so there's a beautiful, large thousand-strong flock of cranes that live there and a 94-year-old woman who's been feeding the cranes for 40 years. And through, the, through, her, through her, we find a way for the fable to have a, not, a less sad ending because we end on the note that you can keep your promise to animals. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to seeing it once you have found Distribution Channel. Yes, yes. Is there anything else I can do? Yeah, as for uh, anything recently that uh, you're working on or any recent films that you subtitled, because we did have you on before and you talked about uh, what you do in terms of subtitling, and I was just wondering if there was anything you've worked on recently that kind of stands out. You know, I, I, I actually don't um, subtitle as much anymore. Um, I'm, I'm uh, busy as a director. I'm trying to think if there's anything that I could really... Uh, highly recommend. I wish I wish I could. Um, I'm developing my new film, <laughs> but um, that's fine. I don't. Yeah, I just uh, that you know the Japanese film business is you know they're they're mostly making adaptations of TV shows and manga, and um, so they and 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 when they subtitle those, they don't come to me. It was good to talk to you, and thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. back and we're talking about cruel story of youth want to thank our guests for coming on the show you can find out more about them and their work at projection-booth.com one of the things that we talked about in the first part before the interview was that um there were the protests against the occupation in japan and uh which is referred to as ampo and there was a documentary that was done by linda hoagland and if you've listened to any of other episodes on japanese films specifically battle royal and battles without honor and humanity you heard her talk about her work in terms of being a subtitler and knowing uh, uh, Fukuzaku and talks about those films with us. But she also made a documentary and talked a little bit about it on those shows called Ampo X Art, which was about the protests that took place, which sort of plays in the background of Cruel Story of Youth. And then also the various artists who were um, – creating work at the time, film, uh, writing, uh, paintings, photography, things like that, that were part of this this larger protest. And I think, Miguel, you talked a little bit about it before the jump, and uh, just wanted to sort of see uh, where else we wanted to talk about what these protests were ultimately about, and uh, if they did accomplish uh, what they set out to accomplish, or is it still an ongoing issue? 
is it still an ongoing issue is kind of a, an interesting thing. I, yeah, they, they did. I mean, uh, to the chagrin of a lot of the people of Japan, it did get ratified and with some amendments here and there and has lasted for a long time. And frankly, the uh, the Japanese U.S. relationship has only grown since these tumultuous times. Uh, I think you're. Your comparison of this time to the war in Vietnam protests in America are quite apt. You know, we had a lot of riots in Japan. This was this was not a uh, a very clean protest by any stretch of the imagination. There was a lot of anger involved. But uh, but that being said, we're talking about a Japan that was demilitarized, uh, had the Japanese self defense force, of course. But um, you know, under the treaty. They had U.S. military might behind them, and and I think, you know, for for good or ill, that that is something that went through, and uh, and has only served to strengthen the bond between Japan and U.S. over the years. Especially, you know, Japan, as we know, has become or did become over the years, the '70s and the '80s and so forth, uh, huge in technology development and uh research and and uh and an economic force of their own so they were a great ally for the u.s to have i think i think u.s intervention had a lot to do with why that why that treaty onpo um went through in 1952 in 1960 i think it was brought up again and renewed in, in 84 or something like that and yeah, it's still there's still a, a huge relationship between the two countries today, and uh, Japan is still a demilitarized society. <laughs> and when you look at other films, uh, where do we see it maybe playing in the background of of other movies, or maybe directly? Anpo itself, you know? Yeah, I mean, just in terms of this uh, militarization, this uh, military occupation, in a particular way of of Japan post war by America. You know, it's funny. Uh, I, I'm just. This is going to be a little bit funny, but I'm going to have to say the Godzilla films. The Godzilla film uh, films, which is a you know a completely different type of film that we're talking about now. But uh, the reason I'm bringing them up is they have a lot of military things in them. It's always JSDF, the, the Japanese Self Defense Force, in them, and uh, and I bring them up because. In the 80s especially, when these Godzilla movies were being made in the 80s, there is this really bizarre contradiction in how venerated the military seemed to be in these films, as well as military-industrial complex. You know, in, in the 60s, those movies in Japan were... were especially in the later ones in the 70s, they get really, really campy and really, really cartoony, and that's the point. But in the 80s, they start to try to take things a little bit seriously, and there is just technology, 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 technology is at the center of the themes thematically in those films. Um, and on top of that, I think, and I think this is where it actually is kind of related, there's this idea that even with these allies, Japan needs to face the problems on its own. You know what I mean? There's there's this real sense of responsibility and real sense of uh, purpose and self-agency that these movies try to get across. And 
I think with a, a movie that's a little bit more B movie esque, that really kind of maybe is a time capsule and shows into the hearts of the people a little bit, you know, of, of what they may have wanted, what their aspirations were, especially in, in this very strange time. So I talked a little bit about Oshima. He made four films over a period of 59 and 60. He had A Town of Love and Hope, Naked Youth, Cruel Story of Youth, The Sun's Burial, and then Night and Fog in Japan. And Night and Fog in Japan actually got him in trouble a little bit with the uh, studio who was putting this out, Show Chico. Um, well, we heard about that when we were talking with uh, David Desser. After that, it's funny because Night and Fog in Japan – Again, a lot of stuff about Ampo and the protests and everything in this. This was very, very much a hot-button issue of the day. And got him in trouble with this, the movie studio. And then he goes on from there, and he makes a film called The Catch, which is also called uh, Shiku, I believe. And that one was kind of neat, because he set that one back in 1945, just prior to what the Japanese would call the capitulation. So right before when they uh, surrendered to the U.S., and that one has a um, black serviceman, American serviceman, being captured and in this village. And it brings out all of this, these kind of petty infightings that are going on inside of the village. And it was just a, a, a nice way to kind of set these people at each other. And it was also a nice way of speaking to, again, this is 1961 when this film comes out, speaking to the ANPO stuff, but through the lens of 1945. So it really kind of, all of these films in this period really kind of speak to one another. And unfortunately, there was there was the catch in 61, the Christian rebel in 1962, and then that was it for Oshima for a long time. He did a lot of television work during the 60s, and it wasn't until, like, 65 that he started to come back with stuff that was theatrically released. He started his own company, Sozosha, in 65. Yeah, so he was he was the, the leader of his domain, and I think that's what helped. Yeah, definitely. And I know that he was very angry with his... You know, studio at the time in 60, 61, kind of abandoning him. And so it was good that he was able to get back onto his feet and do, you know, another string of just amazing works from all the way from 65 up until, I want to say, like early 70s with that. I mean, it was all the way up until at least the ceremony in 71. No, he did, uh, he still did more stuff after that, Dear Summer Sister. So it was really up until early part of the 70s where he was making these theatrical features and then of course he did it in the realm of the senses in 76 and that kind of put him on a different path or gave him different you know notoriety and that was uh it was kind of sad that that was for the longest time the only Oshima that i had seen they showed that one when i was in college and even though that again that plays against some protest stuff that was going on but i think that was the what the nini roku stuff of like what 36 or something mm -hmm. that's kind of in the background of this stuff but for the most part it just becomes this i'm not a big fan of in the realm of the senses i don't know if you guys were but it was just it felt very much like a 
artsy exploitation film. I actually really like it in the realm of the sense. Okay, good. But uh, <laughs> it took me a lot of a lot of time before I could warm up to it, probably because it's not easy to watch, and um, and it's very difficult to get. Especially when I first saw it, I, I think like you, I was in college and I was a little too young, as you know, as as kind of silly as that is to say, but it has some very explicit content and that can crowd out some of the other stuff that's going on, you know, in the mind of the viewer sometimes. I think that's one of the dangers of deciding to be so candid with your filmmaking. Now, that being said, I I think that in the realm of the senses does work, but, uh, it, it's less it's it's you know you mentioned the backdrop and the the backdrop of in the realm of the senses really is about the relationship and about i think it's about power structures it's very similar in a way it, it's similar to a lot of the stuff we see in a cruel story of youth because a cruel story of youth has a lot of power structure in equalities that happen uh whether it's between the two young people or between the young people and their sugar mamas <laughs> or everybody else that is going on on the side there's a lot of power grabs and unfairness going on in the realm of the senses is about that boiled down to a purely sexual um nature and and obsession you know and i think uh i think the reason i love that film is not just because of how it's shot it's a beautiful work of art i think but uh but the the acting is very brave in it and uh, I think the relationship that Oshima had with his actors in the, in the realm of the senses, it could only have worked at all if their understanding of what they were doing was completely simpatico, simpatico you know. So I, I think there's a lot that can be said about in the realm. How, when's the last time you saw it, Mike? When I was like 19 or 20 years old. Give it another shot. <laughs> all right. It's a good film. All right, I will watch that. I kept thinking that I should do a, a double feature of that and what was it called? The Woman Named Seta Abe, which I think is much more of an exploitation film. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give it another shot. You know, there's that famous quote. I think it's even on the uh, the Criterion or whatever. I can't remember. But uh, Oshima, in fact, I quoted this earlier because of the um, Louis C.K. debacle that's going on after his uh, Saturday Night Live thing last night. And I have Oshima on the mind because of this podcast. But he said, oh, God, I'm going to have to paraphrase it. But it's something along the lines of, you know, what is expressed is never obscene. Only what is hidden can be obscene. And I think that says everything about his filmmaking is he wants to be as frank and honest about everything about the human condition as he can, uh, including the crazy stuff you see in in the realm of the senses. I don't think he was trying to be exploitative per se. I, I think he was just trying to be very frank. And that that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a thin line. Well, I have to say, taking this all the way back to Cruel Story of Youth, I mean, this fits in that whole mini movement of sun tribe films which were like youth and rebellion type of movies and you can be as artful in the u.s as a rebel without a cause or you can be like you know teenage gang debs kind of stuff you can be much more exploitive so i 
definitely think that Cruel Story of Youth is not exploitive whatsoever. This is just that hard-hitting kind of expose and just such a beautiful and well-made film that it just um, – it, and it stands the test of time, man. Like I said, 55 years, and this thing is as powerful now as it was when it came out. And I, I really can't recommend this enough to people. I have no disagreement with you on any of those points, that's for sure. I think a funny comparison would be a, a U.S. Exploited, uh, exploitation children gone bad movie like High School Hellcats, where the big problems are the kids tricked her into wearing slacks to school. You know, this is uh, this is definitely a very intense and, and very personal film that has a lot of power behind it. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's film. Rock and Roll High School is an album and a movie. Vince Van Patten is crazy about PJ Souls, but she wants to live a rock and roll fantasy with her favorite group, the Ramones. The new principal tries to stop the music, but the kids rock and wreck the school. Rock and Roll High School, the school where the students rule. Your school could be next. That's right, Hepcats. Next week, an episode on Alan Arkish's Rock and Roll High School will be joined by Film Wax Radio's Adam Shartoff. But before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Miguel Rodriguez. Now, Miguel, what have you been up to lately, sir? Oh, gosh. Where do, I, where do I start? I'm currently in film festival submission season for my film festival, which I direct here in San Diego, California. It's called the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. It takes place September 11th through 13th at the Museum of Photographic Arts in Balboa Park. And so a lot of my time is spent organizing that and getting making sure it is one of the the best festival that I can put on here in San Diego. Along with that is the podcast I do, which uh, used to be called Monster Island Resort, but now has merged with the festival itself. So it's the Horrible Imaginings podcast. You can find out about both those things over at hifilmfest.com or HiFilmFest. Um, so podcast episodes as well oh. as other screenings <laughs> uh, is that like and tell I, me why zo oh hi podcast no because oh, there's hi, no podcast. <laughs> there, there's no o <laughs> i didn't think of that now but now now i'm yikes i don't know if i should exploit that or not <laughs> uh, you do a promo for you <laughs> yeah. well hi film pass what you doing this is tell me why zo how's your sex life <laughs> Anyway, we derailed you. Yes, and that's okay because it was funny. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I also do uh, several monthly screenings here in San Diego, including Delirio and Film Geeks, which really are just uh, ways to get theatrical screenings to films that would otherwise blow our little city by. So, uh, oh, for example, Mike, you and I recently worked on getting – Andrew Leivold's uh, search for Wang Wang to each of our cities. So things like that, which uh, that was a lot of fun. And I guess I'll plug on June 13th, if anyone in San Diego is listening, I am doing a book signing, which is free of charge, just buy the book, of a brand new book that should interest cinephiles everywhere 
called Funky Bollywood, The Wild World of 1970s Indian Action Cinema. The author is Todd Stadman, who writes the Die Danger, Die Die Kill blog. And uh, he'll be joining us at the Digital Gem Cinema in San Diego to screen clips of Bollywood action films from the 1970s, as well as sign copies of his guide to that genre and era, which is a lot of fun, and I can't recommend it enough. That one is going to go on the wish list right now because that sounds right at my alley. I think I I thought it might be. (laughs) I'm like looking at my copy of that Bollywood funk soundtrack that they put out a few years ago. And I mean, that thing has seen a lot of play in my CD player. So, yeah, it's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. A fistful of curry, so I'm right there, man. Well, the people of Detroit definitely thank you for helping to bring the search for Wang Wang to our fair city, and it was great. That whole screening and seeing Andrew and everything was terrific, so I really appreciate your help setting that up. It couldn't be. It's a, it's a pleasure. I mean, I want as many eyes in front of things like that as possible, so it's definitely my pleasure. Yeah, I think that made – was that on both of our top ten lists last year? Rob? Oh, yes. And, um, you know, we're both a little biased because we threw a couple of dollars behind that to make that happen. But that's not why I liked it so much. I just think it's a fascinating film. And um, hopefully it'll be coming to the States for everyone to see soon. The Search for Wang Wang. Well, thanks again, Miguel, for coming on the show. It's definitely been a long time coming. And thanks to everybody for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, go on over to iTunes, leave us a review and some stars. It'll just make you feel better. Oh,
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.